Fake outrage culture strikes the White House. Steve Bannon makes an appearance at the January 6th hearing, sort of. And John Bolton's admission demonstrates a troubling trend in America right now. What gives? You're listening to the Propaganda Reports Drive Time at News Blast. I'm Brad Binkley. Before we get started, I wanted to shout out an event happening here in Georgia this upcoming Sunday, July 17th. Robbie the Fire of the Part of the Problem podcast will be doing a stand-up show and Liberty Hangout at the Town Square Playhouse in Fayetteville, Georgia. The show starts at 7.30, and I believe tickets are 20 bucks. I went to the show that he did last year there in Fayetteville, and it was a lot of fun. There were a lot of people from the Propaganda Report community there, so we all got to hang out afterwards, have some drinks, and... Good times were had all around. It was fun. So check it out. Thank you, Amy, for reminding me, and Ism Kent as well for letting people know about that show. I'm going to be there if I can, but I'm not 100% sure yet. Hopefully, I'll be able to let y'all know by Friday. Okay, on to the first story of the day. Jill Biden caused some heat yesterday. And this story, by the way, I'm going to be honest, it's really stupid. But I want to talk about it because it highlights a big problem in modern society right now about how much power we give to those who pretend to be outraged about things. Here's the story. Jill Biden caught some heat yesterday after comments she made during a speech to a Latino civil rights group in San Antonio where she called the diversity of the Hispanic community as unique as the breakfast tacos in San Antonio. The remarks were made at a Unidos U.S. conference. Unidos is a Latino advocacy group that promotes progressive policies. Here's the clip. Oh, and the wheezing that you hear in the clip, that's not on my end. That's in the actual video. I couldn't find one without it. But we can't get those things on our own. Raul helped build this organization with the understanding that the diversity of this community, as distinct as the Bogodas of the Bronx, as beautiful as the blossoms of Miami, and as unique as the breakfast tacos here in San Antonio, <laughs> is your strength. That was it. How offensive that was. The remarks by the First Lady, the Bogotas in Brooklyn. I don't even fault her for that, for mispronouncing bodegas, because she probably doesn't say that word a lot. And when you don't say a word a lot, and you have to then say it, especially in a public forum, you can get in your head about it. Even if people tell you how to pronounce it, you can then mispronounce it. That is actually pretty common. So I don't fault her for that. It does, however, her mispronunciation of that, highlight a point I'm going to talk about in a minute, which is how inauthentic the appeals that she made were, which is a problem. I don't know why her speechwriters didn't continue with the alliteration. They should have just gone with the salsa in San Antonio if that's what they wanted to do, because using that alliteration of bodega, which she mispronounced, made it obvious that she doesn't say that word a whole lot. So they put alliteration above authenticity right there. But more on that in a moment. In response to those remarks, the National Association of Hispanic Journalists said, among other things, we are not tacos. Do not reduce us to stereotypes. They said that via Twitter. The First Lady later apologized via spokesperson who said the First Lady apologizes that her words conveyed anything but pure admiration and love for the Latino community. You know, those are always the best, most genuine apologies are the ones done via spokesperson. So my thoughts on this when I initially saw this story were, this makes perfect sense. President Biden 
boasts about threatening to whip Corn Pop with a chain. He tells black people who don't vote for him that they ain't black. Hunter Biden once called a lawyer of his the N-word, N with an A, during a text message where he said, how much do I owe you? Because N-word, you better not be charging me Hennessy rates. Just one of the many examples of him using that word on his hard drive, the hard drive that is the gift that keeps on giving. And now we have the First Lady Jill comparing Latinos to tacos directly to their faces in a speech. My initial reaction was that this wasn't a mistake, like I'm sure they will probably try and claim, that this is clearly just how the Bidens are. But after listening to that clip, watching that clip, I don't think that's the right take here. So I'm going to do something that Hunter Biden would never do based on statements that he apparently made about Dr. Jill. I'm going to defend her a little bit. Jill Biden did not do anything different than what just about every other politician does when they are out giving these speeches. What they do is they make appeals that are specific to the local community they're addressing. And you guys know this. It's like speech writing 101. It's an attempt to build rapport. They mention the local sports team or some figure everybody know and loves from the area or the most well-known restaurant that everybody's eating at or whatever else is unique to that community that they hope will resonate with the largest number of people in that crowd, which is fine if it's authentic and that if the person speaking means it and it's not just obviously an attempt to try and make a connection or manipulate them. And that's the problem with the way that most of these politicians do this. Instead of it being something that the politician has experienced and genuinely appreciates, it's like their speechwriters Googled what to do in San Antonio or wherever else and then just plugged in whatever shows up on the TripAdvisor link that pops up first and then they put that right into the speech. The problem here isn't that they do stuff like this. We all do that, in fact, in like everyday conversation. The problem is that when they do them, they lack authenticity, and it comes off as just an attempt to manipulate, which this seems to quite obviously be, really highlighted more by the fact that she mispronounced bodega. Again, not because she's dumb or because that's a hard word to pronounce, but if you don't say a word frequently, and then you're put on the spot to say it is easy to get in your head. But it does highlight, as I mentioned earlier, that she doesn't say that word a lot, which means she probably doesn't think about bodegas a lot, which means she probably doesn't really know what she was talking about with that earlier reference. So Jill Biden didn't suck in any unique way here. She just demonstrated, as many do, why most politicians suck. She repeated a basic stereotypical appeal, very general appeal that was written by a speechwriter instead of mentioning something that was real and meaningful to her. That's how it appeared to me anyway when I watched the video. But she's not the only one who sucks in this story. Because so what? Who cares? Big deal. Make fun of her about it. But who cares? To pretend to actually be upset about this, like the National Association of Hispanic Journalists or Hispanic Republicans are doing in response, is just as inauthentic as her taco appeal. And it illustrates a bigger problem in society right now, which is instant outrage culture. Every time someone says something dumb or makes a mistake, two things we all do from time to time, the opposition and Activist groups who see it as an opportunity to fundraise and get attention to issues they champion act like they're so outraged about it. They just can't believe it. Oh, the humanity. Look at some of these reactions to her 
comment. I mentioned the National Association of Hispanic Journalists earlier. They issued a formal statement, a kind of long formal statement about this. In it, they said, and I'll just read part of it, Using breakfast tacos to try to demonstrate the uniqueness of Latinos in San Antonio demonstrates a lack of cultural knowledge and sensitivity to the diversity of Latinos in the region. And it goes on and on. Who comes up with a statement like that, by the way? That's a ridiculous Karen sounding like statement that they posted on this like formal looking thing they tweeted out. And at the bottom of the post, it says hashtag representation matters. And then they spent the entire day using that story to call attention to the issues that they champion. It's just a a con that these activists use pretending to be outraged. They're not the only ones that use it. Here's an example of a response from a Republican. Cuban-born Republican, Florida Representative Carlos Jimenez, and I may pronounce that wrong for all I know, he said, at the very least, she could have compared us to Krakides. I'm sure I probably pronounced that wrong as well. Then he said, but in reality, it's a truly disgraceful comment. Disgraceful? Really? That's a bit of a stretch to me. He goes on to say, for far too long, Democrats have treated us as an interest group. Just another voting block for them to use to win elections. Well, yes, of course they have. And so do Republicans. They treat all of us like voting blocks that they want to use to win elections. This is not new. This is not a surprise. If you want to be outraged about that, be outraged about all of the politicians that do that. And the worst part about this story, for me, I think, the real mistake that Jill Biden made is her apology. You cannot apologize to these people. You just can't. I'm not saying you should never apologize if you actually mess up or if you say or do something ill-advised that really does hurt someone that you care about and you are genuinely sorry. Of course, apologize when it is merited. But no one was actually offended here. No one's offended by that. It's ridiculous. No one was hurt by her comments. They're pretending. And you can't apologize to people who are pretending to be outraged because they're not going to accept your apology. Not really, anyway. Because accepting the apology would negate the whole reason they're pretending to be outraged in the first place, which is to mobilize, raise money, and in the case of the NAHJ, the National Association of Hispanic Journalists, attempt to force their progressive ideas into the conversation. If they truly accept the apology, they cannot use the offense in question, quote, offense, to do all of those things. So what they do instead is they take the apology as an admission of guilt, an admission that a great wrong was committed, and they go flail their arms on social media and they use it for their own political benefit. That, to me, is what's truly offensive here. And another problem with apologizing to those who are only pretending to be outraged is that it shows activist nation, which we are living in now, that they can get what they want by throwing themselves on the ground, screaming, and pretending to be outraged all the time. That's what this stuff is conditioning younger generations of people to do, to just react with total outrage anytime they're told no in an attempt to get what they want. Is this what we want, to be at the mercy of the worst people in our society, people who get offended or at least pretend to get offended by absolutely everything. It's like we'd be under the total control of toddlers, which I guess really isn't that far off. So in my opinion, 
First Lady Jill would have been a lot better off by saying something like, hey, you know what? It wasn't the best comparison to make, but is San Antonio not known for his breakfast tacos? I mean, come on. All I was trying to say is that the group that I was speaking to is pretty cool, and I like what they're doing, and more people should know about it, okay? And as for you who are pretending to be offended by it, you can just go F off, you know? Go somewhere and Hunter Biden yourself for all I care. That, I think, would have been a stronger response for First Lady Jill. And by the way, I'm not advocating for the group that she was speaking to. I'm just saying that that might have been a better way for her to respond to those criticisms instead of sending out a spokesperson to apologize for her, which is, in fact, actually the most insulting thing to the people you're apologizing to. I don't even have the time to do the apology myself. Let me shoo my spokesperson out there to go do it for me because I don't want to talk to those disgusting people. That's how that really kind of comes off. That's actually probably more likely to offend people in that group than the actual statement that she made. There were probably people who were like, oh, that's nothing. Who cares? But then when they saw that she sent out a spokesperson to apologize, that's probably when they actually got upset. Okay, before moving on, a couple of the top responses to this story, my favorite responses, and I am all for this stuff. I'm all for making fun and making light of stuff like this. And a couple of Republican lawmakers did that, or their spokespeople or their tweet writers did, whatever. Here's my favorite one. The Bidens should focus more time on providing opportunity and hope to all Americans and less on thinking about how different groups of Americans remind them of snacks. Here's another good response. This one from Marco Rubio's office, who on his Twitter page, all they did was tweeted out, change of profile picture, and then they showed a picture of a taco. Go to Rubio's page. It's pretty funny. Okay, moving on. The January 6th hearing yesterday, or Tuesday, depending on when you're listening to this, Real quick on this, not going to talk a lot about it, but during the hearing yesterday, the committee played audio of Steve Bannon from his podcast, The War Room, where he was saying sensationalistic things about what might happen on the day of the inauguration, Biden's inauguration, which if you've ever heard Steve Bannon's podcast, he says sensationalistic things about everything all the time. The music is sensationalistic. There's nothing about it that is not sensationalistic. I bring this up only because... The committee did not have to rely on just audio from Bannon's podcast. They could have had the man himself in there, a firsthand witness, testifying live for all of the American public to see because Bannon, as I talked about yesterday, said he was willing to testify. But of course, that is not what the committee wants. They do not want the American public to see or hear anything that's not completely controlled by them because they don't want them thinking outside of this very tightly constructed narrative that they're pushing. They don't want Americans evaluating and deciding for themselves how they feel and think about this. They want to spoon feed us. But they do still, however, want Bannon. They just want a controlled Bannon, which is why instead of bringing in a willing firsthand witness, which would be unpredictable, they play podcast audio of that person instead. This is how our taxpayer dollars are being used. This should be an insult to anyone with a brain who knows how to use it, knows how to think at least a little bit. They only get away with this because there are enough Americans. There's not a ton of Americans, but there are enough Americans who are swept up by these emotional appeals who are unable to take a breath, step back, and realize that you can 
both dislike Donald Trump and also realize that what these people and the media are saying about January 6th is a lie. You can dislike Trump and recognize that not only Republican politicians, but also progressive politicians and the media are trying very hard to manipulate them. A dislike of Trump does not require one to love and believe everything Adam Schiff says. I mean, what a world that would be. It's okay to dislike all of them or at the very least question the assumptions they try to project onto us. All right, before we get to the final story of the free portion of the show, which will be about John Bolton's comments on coups and what they say about a broader trend going on in society right now, I want to tell you what we're going to talk about in the exclusive XR portion of the show, which is Brian Stelter's attempt to look like a credible journalist in an interview he did with the former head of the now-defunct Department of Homeland Security's Disinformation Board, Nina Yankovic. That's right, she's back. Now, if you want access to that exclusive content, you can go to patreon.com slash propaganda report and subscribe there. All tiers receive that content. I will also be doing a Rockfin live show at rockfin.com slash propaganda report. Rockfin live with video and interactive chat. Either later today, I'm assuming that you're listening to this on Thursday at this point, or tomorrow, Friday, depending on scheduling. Perhaps both if everything works out well. The consistency of the time of day that shows have been going up and the live stream starting, it's been, you know, it's been a little inconsistent. I'm aware of that, and it will improve in the near future. Right now, with it being just me working on the show, and outside of when Cam joins, which helps a ton, I mean, it helps so much, it's just me outside of that. I do all the editing, I do all the technical production, I do all the content, all the research, all the uploading, I do all of it. And with all the changes I have going on in my life right now, and the stuff that I just have to take care of outside of the show, the timing of everything, even though I don't want it to be, it fluctuates. But that is going to change. It is going to improve as these things get smoothed out. I need production help, honestly, but I just can't afford to pay for it right now. I don't have a budget like others do where you, you can get that taken care of. And I'm not going to ask somebody to do it for free. I'm just not going to do that because I've done it for such a long time that I understand how much of a pain it can be and how tedious it can be and how much hard work it actually is. So I would like one day to be able to add that to the show because that would help so, so much. But right now I just can't do it. And managing all of that, doing all of this myself... It's been a bit of a learning curve for me, and I am learning, and I am getting better, and I am getting faster, and I am recognizing what I can and cannot do, and as that and these other things in my life get taken care of, as I mentioned, the timing of everything will be much smoother and much more consistent. So with that said, I'm very grateful. Like, I don't think I can even express how grateful I am to those of you who continue to support the show via Patreon, via Locals, via Rockfin subscriptions, or who just make a one-time donation. I mean, you're why I can continue to do the show. I would not be able to continue doing it without that. I just wouldn't be able to. So I can't say it enough. I really can't. It's probably annoying at this point, but thank you. Thank you so much. And if you'd like to help out the show and you're in a position to, subscribe to one of those subscription platforms. You get exclusive content or make a one-time donation. I'll leave a link for all of those things in the show notes. Oh, and another perk of subscribing to one of the subscription options is that you get all the shows ad-free. I remove all of the ads and I put it in those feeds ad-free. Now let's get on to that final story of the free portion of the show. 
In the distant aftermath of many major historical events, those involved often write memoirs or books about the role that they played in bringing that historical moment to be. Books that often shed light on things that had the public known at the time might have resulted in history taking a different direction. An example of this are the number of books that were written in the aftermath of World War I by propagandists who were members of or closely associated with America's infamous World War I propaganda agency, the Committee on Public Information. In the years following the war, propagandists like Edward Bernays and George Creel and intellectual elites who ran in the same circles and studied propaganda like Harold Laswell and Walter Lippmann wrote books about the inner workings of this American propaganda agency, books where many eye-opening revelations were made. For example, in Edward Bernays' book, Public Relations, he doesn't just admit that him and his buddies made up fake atrocity stories to manipulate the public into supporting America's entrance into World War I. He flat out boasts about it. On either page 75 or 76 towards the top, if I recall correctly, if you want to check that out. He also talks about how the public was very angry once they eventually found out that they had been deceived. They became so angry, in fact, that in Bernays' eyes, the term propaganda had gotten a, a bad rap. He saw it as a good thing, but because it had come to be seen so negatively by the public, a new untainted term needed to be created. That term, which Bernays claims to have coined, I don't know if he actually did, but he claims to, was public relations. It's funny, because whenever someone tells me that they majored or are majoring in public relations in college, I ask them, have you ever heard of Edward Bernays? And while I haven't gotten a huge sample size, I have asked a handful of people of this, and every time, they had not heard of him. So in other words, they likely had no idea that they were actually majoring in propaganda. Bernays also makes other admissions and speeches and essays that he wrote. He admits to having helped the government, the CIA, organize a coup successfully in Guatemala that resulted in a democratically elected president being overthrown. Now, the U.S. government later apologized for this, much, much later. Bernays' role in this, well, he was helping not only the U.S. government, but also a banana corporation he was working on the behalf of, the United Fruit Company, who didn't like the new policies that the democratically elected president was implementing. So, what the heck? Let's work with the government, a little public-private partnership, and do a coup in Guatemala. So, these types of admissions used to take a long time to be made, years, decades even, and when they were made, they were often made in books written by elites that were usually only read by other elites, or not at least read by the broader public anyway. But today, these types of admissions seem to be happening almost in real time sometimes, and they're being made blatantly by the media and by former public officials for all to hear. You probably recall the New York Times and other news outlets reporting, openly admitting, I mean, that many of those initial stories that we heard about the Ukraine war that all of these mainstream outlets widely reported were actually not true at all. They had been wholly fabricated, but they spread them anyway because it was the right thing to do in this fight for democracy against authoritarianism, which is basically the same justification that Bernays used to give for the reason that he lied to the public. And yesterday we had another casual, if not boasting admission made by a former government official, most recently a national security advisor who Trump fired in 2019, John Bolton. 
Not to be confused with Michael Bolton. You do not want to confuse these two. The way that you tell them apart is like this. In times that you're not feeling so strong, if you go to Michael Bolton, you can lean on him. He'll be your friend. He'll help you carry on. If, however, you go to John Bolton in those times that you're not feeling so strong, well, he'll see that as a prime opportunity to bomb the hell out of you. So don't get those two confused. Now, John Bolton, who ever since Trump fired him in 2019, has routinely been brought on as an expert guest commentator by networks who just used to hate him all the time, was brought on again to CNN yesterday to speak with Jake Tapper about the January 6th hearings. And during the conversation, Bolton just nonchalantly admits to having experience planning coups. Here's the clip. It's also a mistake, as some people have said, including on the committee, the commentators, that somehow this was a carefully planned coup d'etat aimed at the Constitution. That's not the way Donald Trump does things. It's rambling from one half-vast idea to another, one plan that falls through and another comes up. That, that's what he was doing. As I say, none of it defensible. But you have to understand the nature of what the problem of Donald Trump is. He's, to use a Star Wars metaphor, a disturbance in the force. And it's not an attack on our democracy. It's Donald Trump looking out for Donald Trump. It's a once-in-a-lifetime occurrence. I don't know that I agree with you, to be, to be uh, fair, with all due respect. Uh, one doesn't have to be brilliant to attempt a coup. Uh, I disagree with that. As somebody who has helped plan coup d'etat, yeah. not here, but, you know, other places, uh, it takes a lot of work. And that's not what he did. It was just stumbling around from one idea to another. Ultimately, he did unleash the rioters at the Capitol. As to that, there's no doubt. Okay, so Bolton is pro-coup. He's a pro-coup guy. He's all about him. It's just a matter of where and who is conducting them that concerns him. And this guy... I just really think that we should question someone who, in the span of about 50 seconds, admits to planning coups, implies that he is, in fact, a genius, and then still manages to advance the narrative that Trump unleashed the rioters. I think we should look at what he says with a little bit of skepticism, if you ask me. And secondly, what happened to the days when these former government officials were tight-lipped about this stuff? I mean, I guess anyone who had knowledge about this, about John Bolton and what he's done, who was maybe worried that they were going to be offed because of what they knew, they can breathe a sigh of relief now. But these types of admissions seem to me to be happening more and more. As I mentioned, am I wrong on that? Are you guys seeing this too? Or maybe they've always been there. They've made these revelations before, but we just didn't hear them as much because of the, or until the age of social media. Maybe that's what's going on. I don't know. I'd love to hear what you guys think if you guys are seeing the same thing. Now, Tapper did something here that you rarely see ever in the mainstream media on television news anymore. He asked a follow-up question about this. You cited your expertise having planned coups. I'm not going to get into the specifics, but... Uh successful coups? Well, I wrote about Venezuela in, uh, in the book, and uh, it, it turned out not to be successful. Not that we had all that much to do with it, but I saw what it took for an opposition to try and overturn an illegally elected president, and they failed. The notion that Donald Trump was half as competent as the Venezuelan opposition is laughable. But I think there's another... I feel like you're this other stuff you're not telling me, though. I think I'm sure there is. 
I love how they both just had a good laugh about all that right there. I mean, why not at this point? Bolton, to me, comes off as the type of guy who goes around strangling helpless animals just to watch the lights go out. That's the type of dude that he seems like to me. It's not a surprise to anyone, not in the least bit, who is familiar with him, that he's planned coups. Of course he has. What would be shocking is if we discovered that he hadn't planned a coup before. What is new, or seems to be new anyway, is, as I mentioned, the openness with which this stuff is talked about. It's like they're throwing this stuff in our faces. Yeah, you know what? I plan coups, and I love it. You know what else I do? I strangle kittens. I mean, just listen to how Bolton responded during a later interview with Newsmax when asked how people are reacting or what he thinks about how people are reacting to his coup admission. Ambassador, I do have to ask you also, your comment yesterday on CNN about coups and orchestrating them, it's getting a lot of play, as you know. Um, what would you like to say to that? Obviously, um, the U.S. is a world superpower. And uh, were you surprised that some of the pickup there was about, you know, your talk? Obviously, you've written about Venezuela a lot in your book. Well, I think there are a lot of snowflakes out there that don't understand what you need to do to protect the United States. Uh, I'm not going to get into specifics. I did write about Venezuela uh, in, in my memoir. Uh, and I think that any president that's not willing to do what it takes to protect the interest of the American people needs to have some uh, some counseling. Snowflakes who don't understand what needs to be done to protect. The, who is this guy? Was he Jack Nicholson from A Few Good Men? You want me on that wall, Snowflake. You need me on that wall. And then he suggests that protecting the interest of America, the American people, simply requires covertly overthrowing foreign governments using coups. And if you disagree with that, get some therapy, Snowflake. Are there a lot of therapists or psychologists who identify not wanting to overthrow foreign governments and install puppet leaders as a sign of mental illness. I, I'm not sure. I've met some therapists, but I don't know that I've met any who are going to agree with Bolton's position there. And I'm not so sure that I believe Colonel Jessup here actually has the interest of the American people at heart. Here's one more clip of Bolton elaborating. Son, we live in a world that has walls, and those walls have to be guarded by men with guns. Who's going to do it? You? You, Lieutenant Weinberg? I have a greater responsibility than you can possibly fathom. You weep for Santiago and you curse the Marines. You have that luxury. You have the luxury of not knowing what I know, that Santiago's death, while tragic, probably saved lives. And my existence, while grotesque and incomprehensible to you, saves lives. You don't want the truth because deep down in places you don't talk about at parties. You want me on that wall. You need me on that wall. We use words like honor, code, loyalty. We use these words as the backbone of a life spent defending something. You use them as a punchline. I have neither the time nor the inclination to explain myself to a man who rises and sleeps under the blanket of the very freedom that I provide and then questions the manner in which I provide it. I would rather you just said thank you and went on your way. Okay, so obviously that wasn't really John Bolton. That was Jack Nicholson from A Few Good Men, a very good movie that is unfortunately tainted by the presence of Tom Cruise. Bolton is a little out of control in these interviews here. The arrogance that he is displaying, I mean, I haven't seen such crass arrogance on display since I watched Hunter Biden tickle his tinsel on video, which was yesterday, actually. And while Bolton seems to be engaging in a more mental form of self-pleasure, both men if you can call them that, 
are throwing the fact that they can seemingly act without consequence in the faces of the American public. And you know what? I don't think that that's necessarily a bad thing. I don't. I don't think it is a bad thing that the nature of these types of people are being revealed to the broader public. Finally, really. I think it can be quite a good thing, in fact, because while they might be hoping to normalize their behavior, enabling them to get away with even more, perhaps even worse things, the more people who see how arrogant and how above the law that these people think that they are, the less people will trust the elites and the less power they will in turn have. And then they won't be able to get away with that type of stuff because they cannot get away with it if they do not have that power. After World War I, there was a revolt against propaganda across the country. People became more critical of government, more critical of media, and they turned a skeptical eye on all of those institutions that they had formerly trusted. This is what Bernays was referencing in the book that I mentioned earlier. This lasted for years, actually, until shortly before World War II. A couple of years before World War II, they started censoring this type of skeptical talk. We are now in a moment, once again, where the broader public does not trust the elites, and not just here, but around the world. And the elites know this, and they admitted so at Davos, and they laid out a plan to try and rebuild trust in all of these institutions. And we see evidence of this rebuilding of trust effort going on in the mainstream media, actually, led by CNN's new head guy. And we are also seeing attempts at censorship. But these attempts aren't working. Other platforms arise. More and more people are waking up to what they're doing. And it's getting to be too much for them to actually contain and control. It's beyond their scope of containment. And while they will continue to attempt silencing speech that they don't like, as long as we remember this history, and as long as we continue questioning and continue looking at them with a skeptical eye, we will not let history repeat itself. The people's eyes who have been opened will remain opened, and as a result, more people's eyes will in turn be opened. That's the show for today. Thank you all for listening. If you want to get access to that XR content, go to patreon.com slash propaganda report. Thank you again for listening. We'll talk to you next time, and have a fantastic rest of your day.